Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I'm really excited about today's show. I'll be joined by Brian Solis, and we'll explore how social media has evolved over the last 10 years and where things are heading. You're going to love this episode. By the way, email me at podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. Let's now transition over to this week's brand new discovery. Helping you stay alive in a social jungle, here's this week's survival tip. This week, I'm joined by Eric Fisher with a brand new discovery. What'd you find, Eric? I found a really cool Chrome plugin called AFS, which is short for Advanced Facebook Search. Advanced Facebook Search. Hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. So a while ago, I don't even remember quite when, but Facebook beefed up their own on-site search, which allowed you to search for people and posts and photos and places and pages and groups and all the good stuff inside of Facebook, all the stuff we love about Facebook. But what this tool does, once you install it on Chrome and go to Facebook and start searching, it gives you that extra, it's like power tools basically for Facebook uh, posts and for Facebook search. It gives you suggestions of things that you didn't even know you could search for necessarily, like videos that that a certain person is tagged in or a page is tagged in. Um, so hold on a second. By a certain person. So how, how I would imagine until you go into the search box, you don't really see anything different. What it, it kind of explain what happens when you have this plugin installed. Yeah. So, okay. So how it works is you literally, you install it, you go to Facebook and then in the search bar, you just start searching like you normally would. You type in maybe a person's name, the name of a page, and then there's an icon and you tap that inside of your browser there up, you know, where, where most of the plugin browser icons show up. Right. Right. And you tap that and then it starts to give you all this extra granular, deeper drill down searches that you can do based on the search that you just did. And these are ones that Facebook itself does not offer up to you naturally. Hmm. Got it. So When you're doing a normal search inside of Facebook, this is just going to recommend things that you wouldn't even think to search for. And as a result, give you kind of suggestions that allow you to deeper dive into Facebook. It's it's just essentially, it sounds like uncovering some of the hidden advanced features of Facebook search and making it easier. Is that right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's almost like flipping a switch and seeing all the, you know, developer tools in a way of the options that you can't see as just a regular user. Was there any way that, did you use this and find anything fascinating that you did not know you could do? 
Um, you know, I, I tried it out and I was looking through and I found some stuff that, you know, friends of mine were tagged in that I weren't aware of, you know, and, and that was pretty cool. So I, I would say this is something that <laughs> it's, it's not like we all need more reasons to drill down deeper and deeper into Facebook and spend more time there. But what this can do is offer up more options creatively for you to see what type of things there are that are searchable on Facebook and maybe create content in that vein. Perfect. All right. Where, uh, how do we get this thing? Okay. So the best way to do this is to go to the Chrome web store, which is chrome.google.com slash web store. And then in the search, you type in AFS. That's all one uh, word, so to speak, and or type in advanced Facebook search. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for this brand You're new You're welcome. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. And now for today's interview with Brian Solis. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. This week, I'm very excited to be joined by Brian Solis. If you don't know who Brian is, he's a digital analyst and futurist at the Altimeter Group. He's considered one of the founding fathers of social media marketing. He authored the Social Media Manifesto and the book Engage. His most recent book is X, The Experience When Business Meets Design. Brian, welcome back to the show. Mike, it's awesome to be here. Any chance to hang out with you is always uh, always a good one. I was thinking back recently to uh, our dinner there at VidCon in Southern California, and uh, that was just too long ago. I know. It feels like forever ago, and it's great chatting with you. So for folks that are listening today, Brian, I, Brian and I are going to explore how social media has evolved from back in the day when he wrote that manifesto and where it's all heading. And I think it's going to be a really exciting dialogue. So Brian, let's get back in the time machine to 2007. Um, <laughs> all right. Back when you wrote that social media manifesto, like, you know, what was the world like back then? Because some of the people listening, you know, were not in social media back then. Well, it was a it was a really exciting time. We were coming out of you know what what was happening in Silicon Valley, which was called Web 2.0 in the mid 2000s, and we started to see the rise of uh, things like you know Facebook opening up to the public in 2006, and Twitter hitting the streets in 2007, and early social networks like 
friend feed and even I think Friendster was still around at the time. And so social media was just budding and it was exciting. And a lot of people were seeing its promise. And at the same time, most of the world had no idea what lied ahead. Right. Uh, so, but I will say this, that in, in those times there was zero direction. It was, and still is in some ways the wild west. Right. So talk a little bit more. I mean, like uh, what led you to, wanting to write a manifesto and let's kind of explore that a little bit. What in the world was in that manifesto? <laughs> it sounds so, uh, sounds so ominous. The social media manifesto, it was really about, you know, when you think about manifesto, or at least for me, I, I was thinking about the idea of a revolution and I took it in the most positive context possible was that social media to, at the time to me was a great democratizer or the potential for a great democratizer for information in that it was going to give everyone the a voice and a platform to share their voice, to share their views. Uh, and I was so inspired by that as someone who really struggled with, you know, getting through to traditional media or, or even affording buying media in order to reach people. I thought that the idea of reaching people directly and people to people engagement was going to be the future of all media. So I wrote the social media manifesto as an opportunity to, to have people and also at the time marketers and brands and traditional media itself to rethink the potential of what happens when media is democratized and how they could be part of the movement rather than trying to control it, trying to broadcast through it. And the social media manifesto was this call to arms of sorts of saying, hey, this is for us. This is for us, by us, and let's be not only responsible with what we could do about it, but let's imagine new possibilities of, of what happens when we, quote unquote, become media. And it was this great sort of exploration, not unlike the, the famous Jerry Maguire email or memo about how we could change the world together. Hmm. What was your job back then? Who were you working for? What were you doing back in 07? Well, at the time, I was running a couple of companies. One was, uh, believe it or not, was an early digital uh, agency slash lab, which was dedicated to helping startups reach their reach their markets. Uh, So back. Back then, we used to call it growth hacking. Well, we never called it growth hacking, but that's what people called it today. Is we found very clever, very non-traditional ways of helping companies with very little resources get as big as they could. Uh, and the goal was to get them either acquired or to IPO or to just profitability. Uh, and I also was very active in developing technologies, developing startups uh, around ideas that I had or wanted to be part of to help form companies or at least build technologies that could be acquired by companies uh, at the time. So it was very, uh, very interesting in that I was in and around not only social media, but the development of a lot of social technologies uh, at the time as well. And, you know, we're recording this in late 2017 for those that are listening in the future. So this is 10 years after you wrote the manifesto. And 2007 was just right around when the economy started turning wrong in America, right? So right around 2008 is when it really tanked. I first got into social media in 2008 and I launched Social Media Examiner in 2009. I felt really late to the party back then because it seemed like 
uh, especially in the public relations world, it seemed like every public relations person on the planet overnight became a social media pro, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was kind of crazy actually. And I, I, you know, but if we think about this and we even go back further in time, you know, I started my first business in 1995, which was arguably kind of the birth of the internet in a major way, you know? So by, by 1997, the internet was still in its baby stage. So here we are 10 years, 10 to 12 years into the, into the uh, internet, you know, becoming mainstream. And then all of a sudden this social media thing comes around timed at a point where the economy was starting to tank and nobody had money to be able to spend traditionally, Right. So the timing of the launch and emergence of Twitter, Facebook, and even LinkedIn was almost perfect. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, so many, so many things you threw out there. Yeah, the, the economy was not not in a good place. And considering that the economy was also just coming off of the crash of you know Web 1.0 and right. the rise one, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the rise of Web two was so so promising, and then it was sort of hit with that economic uh, economic challenge. But the thing that was so interesting is that social media seemed, and I don't, I didn't study this economically, but it seemed to be almost recession proof. It was a juggernaut. It really took everything over by storm. It, it excited all of the geeks. If you remember. South by Southwest Interactive really enjoyed a, a surge in popularity around 2005, six, and seven, uh, with with all of the you know the rise of Web 2.0 and social media following. So there was a very um, it was a very uplifting time for all of the all of the geeks that well. I, I, any geeks and not just meaning geeks, techies, anybody yeah, exactly. who anybody who who had an itch to had a desire to itch something new, right? <laughs> exactly, and, and it was like the beginning of entrepreneurship, at least in this era, because uh, there's always been entrepreneurs, but it just this resurgence of everything, and I think most most of all excitement. Uh, so the thing about that, though, is you said that it seemed like overnight everybody in PR was suddenly a social media pro. I think everybody in every industry was suddenly a social media pro. You had marketers, you had advertisers, you had coaches, you had uh, you name it. Everybody just latched onto social media because it was it, it was its next gold rush. It seemed, but but that didn't that didn't take away from the promise. It it just distracted from the opportunity, and that is why and one of the reasons why I wrote the manifesto is that I saw this as being sort of the you know coming off of Web One and living through that. You know, I moved to Silicon Valley in '96, so I, I watched the rise and fall of that as well. And you didn't you didn't want that to happen again. And, and social media showed the promise of really. Fantastic opportunities, not just from a, a market or a profit standpoint, but just changing the world kind of opportunities. But you also started to witness, you know, well, what happened with Web 1.0 when everybody jumped on board? That that's what was going to happen to social media as well. And I did, I wanted to do my part to steer it in a very positive and productive direction. So uh, somewhere along the line, you launched this thing called the Conversation Prism. Was that? around 2007? And if so, can you explain, first of all, when it came out and what exactly it is for people that haven't maybe seen it? Try to describe it in words. Well, the if you go to conversationprism.com as you're listening to this, or if you can, you'll be able to see it visually as we're talking through it, or at least the latest iteration of it. It was launched officially in 2008 
at South by Southwest, uh, and it was it was a very guerrilla launch in that it was posted as a poster everywhere around Austin, and it was really at the time when social media was just really about to take off. Uh, we started working on it in 07. It took a really long time, and the inspiration for it was that social media, let's just say social networks, were really starting to pop up everywhere. Uh, you had Facebook really starting to show us possible. You had MySpace, you had Friendster, you had all of these niche works, as as they were called at the time, also starting to take off. Uh, Ted Reingold, uh, may he rest in peace, had started, for example, Dogster and Catster, which were essentially social networks for dog owners wow. um, and cat owners. And there was just so many uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these networks just coming out of nowhere that, and you also had, as you said, people becoming social media experts overnight, but there was very little, there was too much chaos, very little organization and orchestration. So the conversation prism, in addition to the social media manifesto was meant to sort of explore the entire landscape of social media and make sense of it. It was very much digital ethnography. Uh, at the time, I was, I was really starting to become a digital anthropologist as well. And I wanted to organize all of the networks and how not only what they offered or what their promise was, but also how they were being used. And I organized it based on how they were being used. And when I did that, it was, oh my goodness, what, a, what, a, what an ordeal, uh, which not only by how they were being used, but also which ones did you, you know, which ones were going to be around for a little while? Because <laughs> I didn't want to spend all this time on a crazy infographic track in hundreds of networks if all of these networks were going to just start dying off and then I'd have to keep updating this graphic over, you know, overnight. Uh, and it also, there was a thing called the social media starfish. And I want to give credit to Dave Fleet and my friend Robert Scoble. Uh, who had created this cute thing called the Social Media Starfish, which was kind of organizing the most popular networks at the time. And I thought, you know, I was working on the conversation prism at, at about the same time and felt like, you know, people are already trying to make sense of this. So why don't I just go the extra mile and do so with the conversation prism? So it was a very organized map. Uh, and also at the center of the conversation prism was this sort of idea that, all of these things come together in some way, shape, or form. And lastly, it was more about, hey, this isn't as you as a marketer or you as a, as a media outlet or you as a brand. You don't have to use all these social networks. Just here they are. And think about where you're trying to be and how they're being used. And then that could build a map for you uh, to listen to conversations where possible, hence the name, the conversation prism, and also where to engage where, where necessary. So, so just thing. so we're clear, um, I know what the shape is today. It's a, it's kind of a circle with concentric circles, if I'm not mistaken, on the inside of our quadrants, right? Was it always that way or was it more of a prism shape in the beginning, more like a triangle? Uh, so the idea of a prism, so this was early on, a lot of folks said, Hey, how, how can, how can you have a circular infographic and call it a prism? But what it's always had consistently is the spectrum of colors. Uh, and the idea was the, the early drafts of, of the prism showed how one conversation could bend like light and go everywhere. Mm. Uh, but 
when you have hundreds of networks, it's poss- it's impossible to stack them vertically. So we uh, we tried to visualize it in a way that was still true to the sense of a prism, and that you had all of these spectrums of conversations across uh, across the web. But we ended up organizing it as a as in a, in a circular format, and it has been that way since two thousand eight. Now, in so in the beginning, you focused on the various social networks slash platforms. But eventually you changed this thing to not just talk about platforms, right? Or networks. Um, how has it evolved uh, over the years? And, and particularly, how has it evolved maybe even over the last few years? Well, yeah, let me, let me kind of, I'm going to back into that answer in that in 2008, when this thing hit this the the market it was a really big deal because it was the first attempt at really trying to organize all of this and it it took off like crazy to the point where we had offered it as a free infographic but there was so much demand for it in in the form of a poster that we had to turn it into a poster a 22 by 28 poster that we ended up having to sell uh, just to cover costs and that thing has sold, I don't even know how many thousands and thousands of, of, of copies over the years uh, in that marketers and brands and just entrepreneurs were hanging it up in their wall as a sense of, uh, of inspiration. And also because we called it the conversation prism as a, as a matter of listening and participating, it inspired a lot of the platforms that you know, like early on, like Radiant 6, uh, to create technologies that would allow you essentially to bring that conversation prism to life. So we sparked a, a massive movement of which, uh, I wish I had thought about starting a company around it at the time. Uh, well, I, did eventually called Buzzgain, uh, but the point was that this this thing started a movement, and over the years, how that evolved was the platforms got more sophisticated. We started to see uh, dedicated apps. We started to see convergence. We started to see acquisitions and mergers. We started to see, you know, of course, death tolls. Uh, but then also over time, mobile really started to become prominent. Uh, you know, we just recently celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone, and a lot of these things really started to mobilize in terms of social media and networks uh, and apps. Uh, so we had to start to accommodate for that as well. Um, your your latest conversation, Prism, came out in 2017, and um, uh, th- what what's changed in this one? compared to the one that came out four years ago? Oh, boy, so much. You know, like you just said, four years. It's four years since the last update. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Like, I should just comment. Like, I have a live show, and I cover literally the changes every week, and we usually cover 20-plus things in our show every week. That's how fast this is changing. So I know it's like a loaded question to say what's changed in four years. Uh, Technically, everything has changed, but, you know, from (laughs) from your perspective, what are some of the major changes that have happened in the last four years? Well, I will say that the design, if you compare 5.0 to 1.0, I mean, it's it's stark in terms of the elegance and sophistication that's gone in behind it. But, you know, I, there's so much. Let me, let me kind of explain why there's been four years. Four years was... I want to I say it was totally intentional, but it wasn't. You know, I've, I've since 
what I've tried to do as an individual, you had asked me what I was doing in 2007 when the first one started to come together. You know, what I had also started to do was become a digital anthropologist, and I started to also start publishing research about, well, what was coming next? At that time, social media was what was next uh, in a major way that was going to disrupt every single industry. Uh, I had to continue to track what was next, and that started to become faster and faster and faster. And so the last four years have been really, really uh, keeping me in a cave or, or underwater, whatever the metaphor is, if you want to use. And f the last four years have seen me cover everything from digital transformation to corporate innovation to customer experience to employee experience to corporate culture uh, and, so, and uh, disruptive technologies as well. So I've been spread kind of here, there, and everywhere. But at the same time, you know, social media kind of found its stride for a bit. You know, there wasn't a lot of big, big, big disruption, but there were a lot of new types of comings and goings of social apps and social networks. Uh, for example, I mean, does anybody remember Peach yet? You know, the, the entire community. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that lasted for like a blink on the radar, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there was a lot of blinks in the last four years. And so I, had I updated this, I would have been forced to have to update it again. And I was just noticing a lot of turnover. And I just wasn't really prepared to dedicate that kind of time to do two or three iterations in the last four years. So I let it sort of play out. And then over the last year or so, got really serious. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, Jamie Schmansky, uh, helped me with uh, this version, and we really tracked everything. And between 4.0 and 5.0, which is technically four years, we removed 84 companies and added 141. Wow. That's massive, right? If you think about just the sheer volume of how many companies we have to track. Which just out of curiosity, what percentage did you remove from the uh, 4.0? Was it like more than half? It's not. It's not half. It's but it's a big chunk. Got um, it. And it. But also at the same time, we added new categories, and we didn't take any categories away. So it shows that social media is getting far more sophisticated and expansive. In that, for example, we added messaging uh, because that's right. become sort of the, the next big thing. And we added crowdfunding. We added travel and hospitality because we we're starting to see social media become much more verticalized. And we also started to track social networks that bring to life IRL. So we called it connecting IRL, those social apps that bring to life real world meetings, things like Tinder or the verticalization of Tinder. All right. I'm, we're going to spend the next um, period of time here talking about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm just going to start throwing things out there. And I want you to talk about it. Um, because I, I this is what's great about Brian. Brian, I could throw anything at him and he's got thoughts on this because as a guy that studies this stuff brian is prepared for to talk about this kind of stuff let's talk about live video um how has live video i mean in the grand scheme of things it's about a year and a half old as of this recording um it, you know as far as uh, the major socials are concerned what's your thoughts on on live video and what it's done to social media well it's definitely changed the game in that you know i used to say that there's a um there's a there's even though there's a me in social media, there's also a we in the social web. And live video has been sort of the next iteration of how we share ourselves and how we also watch uh, or follow others. Uh, and it's really turned people into a visual broadcast network, whereas it's where social media is, was largely text at the beginning, then sort of 
evolved into imagery and then more sophisticated imagery and then video we saw with YouTube and or Vimeo and early networks. But live video really turned people into sort of broadcast, real-time, uh, serendipitous moments where they just sort of came to life. Uh, and a lot of it has been very simple, and here's me what I'm doing right now or where I'm standing, uh, to also people turning in these into full-on broadcast mechanisms to engage new audiences in ways that just weren't possible, where they're becoming almost like their own TV networks. Uh, and it has been also, in some ways, incredibly boring uh, in that people just weren't that creative in how they were using the, the medium. But at the same time, there have been Facebook, for example, has really, really started to show what's possible uh, beyond just Twitter and Periscope uh, in what and meerkat for example but what's what's really possible when you can engage small groups or large groups of people around moments that matter algorithms oh wow yeah side there's two things there's algorithms there's artif well three things there's algorithms artificial intelligence and uh, what i call the human algorithm uh, in that algorithms depending on which company you, you look at, design them for different purposes. I think what we, we saw is that without considering the human algorithm, which is what the human aspiration is, what the human intent is, and what the human well-being is in terms of purpose and outcomes and possibilities, without a positive, uh, optimistic approach to that, you can quickly steer into a lot of trouble uh, without without any of those things. And what we saw, every algorithm really F up during the last – uh, election and that they were all manipulable uh, and at the same time uh, creating these smaller groups of networks of people who were like-minded uh, and it sort of I hate to be controversial but we actually saw the lack of critical thinking uh, in that people were willing to believe whatever was put into their feed and the algorithms had a, had a lot to do with that. I think now we're starting to learn what's possible here, but I always believe that with artificial intelligence and, and aligned with the human algorithm, algorithms could be not only much more human, but relevant and promising. Let me comment for a little bit on uh, my thoughts on algorithms outside of the political uh, commentary. Um, from a marketing perspective, algorithms has made our job a lot harder and what I mean by that is that those of us that have, um, you know, any kind of following on any social platform are just getting a fragment of the engagement and interaction that we used to get. And, you know, I've documented this. I've gone back and looked at, for example, five years ago, uh, National Geographic on a single post would get literally like 50,000 shares, you know, and, and, and like millions of, of, of engagements and tens of thousands of comments, you know, and now their audience is substantially larger and they get literally like they get logarithmically reduced, you know, like maybe 1% of that. So I think that the algorithms um, are there obviously to create a good user experience, but at the same time, they've also dra dramatically hurt engagement and conversations are not happening as much because of algorithms. And I think that live video is actually kind of an encouraging thing because live video is almost like what I call the true manifestation of social because you can truly interact with your audience live, you know, in real time in a way that you just cannot do with a post anymore. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Have algorithms forced live video to be more necessary? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yes, yes and no. I mean, I, again, a lot of this has the human algorithm uh, element to it. Is that everybody? Just because you have the platform doesn't mean that the that you're going to be engaging or shareable. Uh, that this is why I always used to say: uh, with with social media comes great responsibility and great opportunity. In that, just just because we could broadcast means that we have to challenge ourselves into thinking about more like who are we trying to reach? Why, why would we want to even be followed or watched? And what kind of content and engagement strategy would we build around that in order to be relevant and then assess how the algorithms work and how they're always changing to make sure that we're plugging into these algorithms in ways that reach the people that we want to reach. Uh, if so, for example, um, just a quick aside, if you look at the center of the new conversation prism, it goes from the center out and you can see that it's almost like a, a, a a framework for how you would as either a content creator or a consumer or a brand or a marketer, uh, design strategies that were going to be relevant to reach the right people. And, and then those algorithms should essentially then be considered as part of that strategy. And live, yes. I mean, live goes back to the days of Web 2.0. I mean, there was there was uh, a, a really good friend of mine who I wish I had stayed closer with because now he's a billionaire uh, the or multimillionaire in that he his name was Justin Can or his, his name is Justin Can he had a startup called Justin TV uh, and Justin TV evolved into Twitch and Twitch was subsequently uh, basically it took the ability to live stream your life at all times it then became Twitch which was live gaming uh, which was exciting but you know Justin TV had to to pivot because a lot of people were broadcasting their lives because they could, uh, and it wasn't really interesting. There was a there were live video uh, attempts that go back to Web 1.0 as well. Uh, you had UStream come up after after Justin TV. It was really just about who figured out how to not only create a platform but how to create the type of content that was going to be really engaging. So Facebook, I think, is really demonstrating what's possible because it's such a huge platform that you have a built-in installed audience of which the algorithm is going to definitely affect who you do and who you don't reach. Uh, but they are, at the moment, putting meat and substance behind live. So this is probably the best time it's ever been to start getting into live video messaging yeah well messaging is the result of the increasingly mobile lifestyle that we uh, that we live and there was a period there as mobile was gaining traction that was called the great unbundling where just because you had a full featured social network like facebook you as your mobile have a much more focused and limited attention span and mind span and 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 you also have a, an intent based on what you're trying to do in those mobile moments and messaging was inherently and messaging and notifications were going to be the big thing uh, to really unfold and and as we saw yes that both of those things became massive uh, and more so led to different types of messaging, not just like texting, but ephemeral, you know, moments and experiences like Snapchat started. To yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's almost like we're moving from a public network to a private network, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. To some extent, I mean, there was a great network that was founded by Dave Morin, uh, who was was an early um, an early driver of Facebook, which was sort of Facebook, but I think the, the limit was you can only have 20 friends. It was really about more intimate, uh, more immediate sort of 
social networking with the people that really mattered in your world. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen that come and go. But yes, yes, messaging at least harnesses some of the private and the public and the and the the other types of moments which we, we kind of well, there's this famous saying there's you live a private life you live a public life and you live a secret life and <laughs> there are networks for all of them how about augmented reality yeah well augmented reality has been really interesting going back to uh the early the early days of of mobile in that you can add a layer to to the the real world that really brings it to life in ways that we know are possible, but and and we're already doing to some extent, just not in real time. Uh, so to give you an idea, back in the early days of Web 2.0, uh, well, no, the early days of the iPhone, let's just say, uh, I developed technology with a good buddy of mine to be experimented with in supermarkets that you could hold the phone over uh, UPC codes and it would bring to life on your phone information about each of those products that you were looking at and, and compared to other products. <laughs> and this, this, is, this is early in the day. And this is so, like pre-QR codes, huh? <laughs> well, that, QR codes were also coming out at the time, but I, I, was, I was thinking that you know, with the processing power that were in some of those early phones that we could, we could bring to life augmented reality huh. uh, in, in a consumer application. But there were a lot of experiments like that, too. So I don't want to sound like I was, I was you know, early pioneer in, in it. But it is, it is super promising. And I call this experience architecture in that just because, like we were talking about earlier with live video, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's going to be necessary. But there are real killer applications. And, and I bet you, you one of the big killer applications, I know this is going to sound horrible, uh, is going to be the, the vehicle windshield. That is, I think, going to be the first killer app for augmented reality. Yeah, well, I already have heads-up display on my car, and you know the the navigation system telling me to move left or right in two hundred feet is pretty convenient, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 you're going to have more things you can do with that as the cars get more sophisticated. That's very cool. Uh, I'm going to call this next category social television. Um, Facebook Watch was just announced, and you know we've got all these major companies, uh, including Snapchat and Twitter, and Apple and so on and so forth, making huge bets into uh, bringing television to uh, mobile and specifically some of the social platforms. What's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that's huge. Uh, we're, I don't know if you saw how many um, millions and millions and millions of dollars that uh, Facebook just recently tried to bid on a particular sporting event. Twitter's trying to use that as its next killer app. It's doing a lot of deals, for example, with the NFL. Uh, social TV is absolutely the next big thing. Uh, in that, though, it was born as a it was born as sort of this act of what you did anyway while you were watching something. You just were on social media to participate in the conversation. Uh, the fact that content is coming directly to the network is going to be that much more integrated. There were early attempts at doing this as dedicated social networks uh, where content was the was the the mainstay and you would engage around the content. But as we saw 
the best the best opportunities are where you engage with your social graph or your interest graph, and then you introduce content into that mix. So absolutely, everybody's starting to bid and create on content, and this it, it's it's a matter of time until we start to really see, you know, does Netflix and does Amazon and or Apple do they start to create their own networks around this, or do they integrate with other networks as well? We're gonna say probably in ten years. I remember when. Uh, Cox Communication or DirecTV was a cable company or satellite company, <laughs> you know, because we're just we're just not gonna we're not gonna have a day where we have to have a subscription necessarily, you know, to get our channels anymore. It's completely becoming disintermediated, and it's fascinating. It's kind of happening in the music space as well. Um, I want to talk about tracking influence because I know this is an area that you're interested in as well. Um, What's your thoughts on um, determining influence? Because influencer marketing is becoming very, very hot. And I, there's kind of, I don't know, is there, is, are you seeing some maturity in that space as far as the ability to track and kind of display influence of people? Yeah, yes and no. You know, I've been, I've been involved in, in tracking and studying. Well, not tracking. Let me just say studying digital influence since 1997. Uh, and that is because what inspired me to start my first company in 99, which was uh, a very early digital, uh, I don't want to call it an agency because it was more of a lab, uh, where we were highly involved in 97 and 98 with startups that were starting to show promise of social and also uh, discussion groups and forums and boards and that were huge hugely influential for example as uh, they were instrumental in the in the rise of digital photography uh, the, just in ways that traditional media just couldn't have launched uh, and I really started to observe just people random people becoming incredibly influential in the truest sense of the word meaning that they could have an effect or change behavior uh in 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 whatever aspect you wanted to measure and that that's what influence means and the reason why I wanted to share that story with you is because you have you have people you have things you have this evolution of platforms that track all kinds of things like popularity uh maybe authority you have uh, audience, uh, you have potential impressions. And so you have all of these sort of ingredients that could lead to true influence. But I, I, I don't know that we're actually tracking influence purely, but it's not a bad thing. It's just, I, I, it was, my work is a call for the sophistication of, or the maturity of how we think about sort of what we want to do with the people that we work with in ways that we create value for everybody involved. So they're coming around. There's a lot of tools that help find really great people, but I think it's like any, it's like any data point. It's, you get out of it what you put into it, and you have to really be mindful about what, you, what you're thinking about so you could find the right people to be involved. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is artificial intelligence. Um, and I really want to talk about it from the marketer's perspective. Where do you see things going with artificial intelligence for marketers that are listening right now? Well, let me let me say this. Anytime there's a new technology, marketing tends to put it in the portfolio of classical marketing. And I and I've seen this with social media. I've seen this with I, just everything. I see it with the Internet of Things. What we don't want to do is just add it to the mix. Right? Marketing in of itself is ripe for innovation uh, and disruption. And that means, uh, you know, for example, if you look at not to get political, but just look at. Uh, 
uh, all of the news about Facebook being involved in uh, with un, un, unfortunately taking money from Russian trolls uh, to lead to misinformation during the election. Then look up Project Alamo and look at the sophisticated approach of which how comp- how Trump and his team used data to then buy ads and create content and also native uh, you know create native spots that were so 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 informed based on the psychographic data that was all intent based on trying to get to know people their aspirations their weaknesses is you know aside from how manipulative it was it was very demonstrative of what's possible when you start thinking differently about data and platforms and opportunities. And I say that because artificial intelligence is just going to make that stuff even better. And it's also going to make traditional marketing even worse. There's a company, for example, called Kahuna that talks a lot about art. Well, they, they are, they're an artificial intelligence platform that plugs into the marketing stack that can help you better understand how people consume content on what device, what types of in, what types of intents do they have where they are in the shopping cycle so that the platform itself can help you make better recommendations on content delivery and times and, and platforms and, and even how to create better content. So as long as your mind is open to doing things differently and in new ways, artificial intelligence is going to make this new generation of marketers the, the, the most valuable breed of marketers. Uh, and I think that this is an opportunity for individuals, especially with artificial intelligence, to think differently about their approaches because if you build on that, that's, that's where you win. I, I was just going to say, I think that the next generation of marketers coming out of college, if they understand how to use Watson and all these other artificial intelligence systems, like I just uh, read a new study that Watson is tar- partnering with, IBM is partnering with MIT, and I think they're investing like $120 million or $210 million with MIT to basically uh, build up the next generation of uh, artificial intelligence engineers and enabling them to build companies and stuff like that. So it's it's pretty crazy. It's going to be a huge competitive advantage if you are able to make sense out of data rapidly, which I guess is the promise of artificial intelligence, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And again, this comes down to experience architecture. So this we have to design new ways of doing things or seeing things so that these outcomes become wonderful experiences that people uh, didn't know were, were, was possible or, or that they're seeing in, in other industries and you're able to bring it to life in your sectors. This is this is all about not just college students. This is anybody who wants to recreate themselves as, as, as a relevant strategist or expert in the future. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us uh, and talking about where we have been and where we're heading. Why don't you tell everybody where they can get the conversational prism and check out all the amazing things that you've done with this new version of it? Well, you could go to conversationprism.com where they can download high-res versions for presentations or for books or for uh, whatever it is that they want to use it for. It has a Creative Commons uh, credit to it, so it's all there on online. You could also order a 22 by 28 poster uh, if you want to hang it on your wall as well. So uh, that's the, the best place to go. I think you could just Google the Social Media Manifesto if you want to take a look at that. And then you could find uh, all kinds of information about my, my articles or the books I've written over the years at briansolas.com. Brian, thank you so much for joining us this week and sharing your awesome wisdom. Oh my gosh, any opportunity to hang out with you. It's my pleasure. 
Well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's interview with Brian. If there's anything that we mentioned and you missed it, simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 273. That stands for episode 273. Also, never miss a future episode of this podcast by hitting that subscribe button on your podcast player. This brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you in the driver's seat next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.